0: This episode was recorded in 2021. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Machiavelli for women.
1: For a conquering prince, he says things are really tough. Everybody's questioning their power, their right to be there which makes it an amazing proxy for women in the workplace.
0: Stacey Vanek-Smith on what the 16th century philosopher can show women in the workplace today. Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, Stacey Vanek-Smith has been reporting on business and finance for close to 20 years. She's the host of The Indicator on Planet Money. And throughout her career, she's reported on everything from oil in Oklahoma to monetary policy in Pune, India. And the more she examined the business world, the more she kept bumping into some unpleasant truths. 80% of CEOs are men. Women make 80 cents for every dollar a man makes. Women start 40% of the businesses in the U.S. but get 2% of venture capital. And of course, these trends extend into the world of politics, law, entertainment, you name it. So what to do? Well, Stacy started to think that some of the answers might lie in Niccolo Machiavelli the oft-quoted and sometimes misquoted 16th-century philosopher of politics, diplomacy, and power. Machiavelli is the source of lines like, It is not the title that honors the man, but the man that honors the title. And the first method of estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. And, of course, it is far safer to be feared than loved. For her new book, Machiavelli for Women, a playbook for getting ahead, Stacy takes lessons from the careers of female leaders including Janet Yellen, Adele Lim, and Nehar Nakeda, and from the philosophy of Niccolò Machiavelli to propose a set of tools that women can use to gain more money, more confidence, more respect, and more support in the workplace. Stacy first read Machiavelli's most famous work, The Prince, in the late 1990s, when she was an undergrad at Princeton, pursuing a degree in comparative literature, and she was not a fan.
1: I really hated the book, incidentally. <laughs> I remember just having a visceral reaction of hatred when I first read it.
0: You guess it's like this power-hungry, right? It's, it's, it seems like, like he's setting you up to live in a scary world.
1: It's so cynical and yeah. sort of... It it feel I mean the word that keeps coming into my mind is basic right It's like how to get power over people how to bend them to your will. It it wasn't inspiring to me. This was nothing I had any interest in at age eighteen. I mean I was a comp lit major guy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was not interested in power or crushing anyone.
0: Yeah. So who were the philosophers that that appealed to you?
1: I remember really loving Cicero. Um, mm. Cicero was so optimistic the way he wrote about mankind and humans and just the potential we all have and the inherent goodness we all have. And that is also true, incidentally. Yes. Um, yes. I still love Cicero. I still get excited when I think about those ideas. But, you know, I've been working for a long time and – um Slowly, I, I have found myself thinking about Machiavelli a lot more over the years than Cicero, and I've developed an appreciation for Machiavelli that I definitely did not have in college.
0: What what were those triggers like? When do you remember him kind of <laughs> sort of popping back into your life from time to time?
1: Yeah, it didn't happen in the early part of my career. I think it happened. Maybe five or six years into my career, I started thinking more about Machiavelli because at that time, you can start to sort of see the arcs of people's careers a little bit. You see people start out and where they're starting to move. Um, I've been working in public radio now for 15 years, so I have seen career arcs. I've seen, you know, interns turn into hosts. I've seen people drop out of the profession altogether. I've seen um, really talented people get – kind of pushed aside. I've seen Mm. less talented people get elevated. I started to realize that, and this may sound incredibly naive, I started to realize that the situation we're in is not fair. And I started thinking about Machiavelli and I started noticing that the people who succeeded were not always the people who worked the hardest or who had the most talent, but a lot of times it was that mixed with people who were very savvy, who could deal with other people really well, mm. who wielded power or dealt with people who were wielding power in a smart way. And I think that is when I first started thinking about Machiavelli. Um, there was a line in the book that stuck with me from college Where he says we have control over about half of our lives. Fortune leaves us one half of our lives to control maybe a little less.
0: Mm.
1: And at first when I read it, I was like, of course, fortune doesn't control half of our lives. We control all of our lives. Um, But, of course, the longer I reported on people in the economy, the bigger my world got, the more aware I became of people in different circumstances. And just watching people in the circumstances around me – the more i began to think that was actually very wise.
0: Mm. most people who know know the name machiavelli, know the prince and might know a few things like his famous line that that it's better to be feared than loved, you know, but, but best to be loved and feared, but if you have to choose one, better to be feared. and yes. you know, <laughs> people often a, a, a ascribe that to richard nixon, like apparently famously would would quote that. um but t- tell me a little bit about him, about machiavelli. like what what was the context in which he was writing this But What was this book supposed to be when he put it out into the world, you know, hundreds of years ago?
1: It was a cover letter in short. <laughs> the Prince was a cover letter. And it was a cover letter to the people who had taken everything from him. It was a groveling cover letter, if I had to sum it up. So Machiavelli... Um, This was back when Italy was city-states, and they were all at war with each other, and there was a lot of violence, a lot of blood. The King of France was running around killing a lot of people. The Pope had armies. He was running around killing a lot of people. It was despots. It was violence. It was chaos. Um, And Machiavelli was essentially the secretary of state for Florence, and he he loved Florence. He wrote in a letter to a friend, "Uh, I love Florence more than my own soul, Hmm. Uh, and he— cared deeply for creating a city in which people could prosper and thrive and do their best work. Um, And he basically spent 20 years going from place to place. You know, popes knew his name. Kings knew his name. He was like kind of wheeling and dealing on behalf of Florence because Florence did not have an army. They didn't have a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing preventing, you know, France or the pope from invading Florence and taking over— was negotiation. It was Machiavelli's wits, honestly. was one of the main things standing between Florence and, you know, a despotic ruler. Uh, Eventually, Florence did fall. um, And the Medici family took control of of Florence. And Machiavelli lost everything. Mm. He lost all of his money. Um, He was thrown in jail, tortured, and kind of run out of town. And Machiavelli loved his work. He loved his work. He found it so fascinating and invigorating and all of a sudden not only was he not did he have no money and he was disgraced and living in this tiny town outside of Florence but he had no power like trapping birds for a living in this old tavern slash brothel that his family ran. I mean his life basically vanished like an Alka-Seltzer tablet and and so he wrote The Prince to Lorenzo de' Medici, who was the person responsible for this terrible twist of fate <laughs> for him. And if you look at the beginning of The Prince, it's it almost, it's very cringy now to look at mm-hmm. because he's like, you're so glorious and, you know, I don't even, my ideas aren't worthy of you. <laughs> I mean, imagine, this is a man who tortured him and taken everything from him. And yeah. Machiavelli comes crawling back and was basically hoping that the prince would be so smart And so kind of transplendent that Lorenzo de' Medici would say, you know, this guy was working for the other side, but he is so brilliant. I have to have him advising me and give him his job back. Hmm. That was the prince. TLDR, it did not work. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work. No.
0: So it was a cover letter for a job essentially. And do you think he imagined this book to be a manual for others or, or is it not really known?
1: He wrote it as a manual, but it was a very particular manual. I think the universality of it, he never thought of. Um, He writes the the prince for what he calls the conquering prince. So he says there are two kinds of princes, those who inherit their kingdoms and those who conquer a new land. Of course, Lorenzo had just taken over Florence. And he says, you know, for an inheriting prince, things are pretty cushy. Um, No one really questions why they're there. They kind of have a precedent of power. But for a conquering prince, he says things are really tough. Everybody's questioning their power, their right to be there. Why should I pay taxes to this guy? Why should I follow this guy's laws? Who does this guy think he is? Which makes it an amazing proxy for for women in the workplace, honestly, Um, and for marginalized workers in general, because you are essentially in this new kingdom, this new territory, right, the workplace, and you're there. But everybody's a little skeptical. There's a lot of pushback. There are a lot of people questioning whether you have the right to be there. And you have to fight to keep what you've earned. And you have to fight to Mm. grow it.
0: I want to ask you about about that very important insight you had and how it relates to to, to women and marginalized people in the workplace in in a moment. But before I do that, I wonder why do you think this manual, right, which was written for this specific prince and and maybe other people in similar positions, why did it come to be embraced mainly, you know, sort of secretly by corporate leaders and politicians and and others in leadership positions? Because we know so many of them have read it or or have read parts of it, (laughs) even if they might deny it. What about this book made it become this sort of manual for for power, for pursuing power?
1: It's such a great question. Uh, I mean it had a very inauspicious beginning. Um, not only did Lorenzo de' Medici – I seems like he never read it, um, never read the book at all. But the Catholic Church did read it and they flipped out. They thought it was completely immoral and they threatened to excommunicate anyone who bought the book. If you had the book, you could be excommunicated and – and and Machiavelli was I think shocked by this turn of events. Um hmm. he basically had been trying to get back in the good graces of the Medici's and suddenly he was this villain. I mean it was it was a complete catastrophe for him. And I think he died thinking the prince was a failure, not a fa- not only a failure but kind of got him canceled as much as one could be canceled in the 1500s. He was sort of thought of as evil. Hmm. But when I was reading the book, I've probably read it like a hundred times at this point, (laughs) I have really come to love it and find it really beautiful. Um, And I think the reason that it has endured, um, even though a lot of it's very outdated, there's something in there that's very timeless. And I think the thing that's timeless about it and I think the thing that makes it controversial are the same thing, which is that he just removes morality Mm. And just looks very logically Mm. at situations. It is as if he's looking at people and human relations like a chessboard. It's like, okay, what are your moves? Where are you powerful? Where are you weak? What can you do to maximize your power in a situation? And that makes it timeless because a lot of times our morals evolve over time. That can date things in a way. Um, And it also makes it sort of shocking because when it's like, well, you know, if if you wrong someone, it's probably a good idea to kill them and their whole family because otherwise they're going to be angry with you and they're like dangerously plotting against you. I mean, it's solid advice, but it's bone chilling, you know. (laughs) But this is like it's both the beauty and the horror of Machiavelli. It comes from the same place.
0: if this is a manual, let's say, broadly speaking, to help pursue and hold on to power, um, it's largely been, historically been, as I said, read by men, right? Men in positions of leadership. When did you first kind of read this book and think, wait a minute, <laughs> everything he says here applies to me, my situation, women in general in general? In the workplace and how women operate in the workplace?
1: The idea came before I had reread The Prince. The idea was, it was actually kind of born out of some frustration mm. because, you know, I've covered business and economics for 15 years. Um, most of the people I talk to for my job are men yeah. because economics is 75, 80% male, uh, it's also very white. Um, and business leaders, CEOs, 80% male. I mean, there's a huge issue happening in our economy. The gender pay gap has been stuck for a decade. Um, there were all these things happening. And I you was know, looking around me at the economic data. And it was really disturbing to me. And yet all the advice that I saw being given to women didn't seem to be looking at the reality of the situation.
0: Yeah. I mean, like when you say the advice that you were reading, it was like, like sort of the lean in kind of stuff or, you know, that, that kind of trend that was happening in the last several years?
1: Yes, for sure. I mean, it was twofold, really. I mean, on the one hand, when I came into the workplace, it was like, just work really hard mm. and let your light shine and you will rise. Yeah. And then on the other hand, it was, you know, sort of like girl power, girl boss, that, I mean that whole movement that has of course largely imploded yeah. too. And you know, as as a person trying to navigate the workplace, and not I'm, you know, I don't like to think of myself as a devious person. I do really love my work. I feel very lucky. I try to work really hard and I do try to let my ideas shine. At the same time I thought a lot of the advice just wasn't working for me, a lot of especially the negotiation advice. I was like terrible at negotiating and I hated it and my negotiations weren't going well. And I just I was looking at the advice that I was being given and I was like, this doesn't work. And I think this is when the idea of Machiavelli started to kind of come from the back of my brain. Like, well, Mm -hmm. what is what is the real advice? Is it? is it uncomfortable? Is it disturbing? Like, what should I really be doing? I just wanted that information. I wanted the truth. That is not always pretty. Some of it's really disturbing. Like, some of the advice I give in the book does not make me feel great. Like, you should smile in negotiations. Negotiations likely to go better. Or Mm -hmm. you should ask the person you're negotiating with, you know, about their family. Because, you know, women tend to do better in a negotiation when things get more sort of social and personal. Like, that is a little disturbing to me, but it's a lot more disturbing to me that you know women, when they retire, are twice as likely to live in poverty, or hmm. uh, that women start forty percent of businesses but get two percent of venture capital. So that during the pandemic, a, a huge number of businesses started by women and people of color failed because those businesses were not capitalized that well. I mean, that I find way more disturbing. And so if smiling during a negotiation will help get more money in women's bank accounts, if it will help them get a promotion more quickly, I want people to at least know that advice, to at least know that that's something they can do that could work.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, naming the particular obstacles women face in the workplace... And the advice Machiavelli might give for getting around them. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices And Airbnb, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Generative AI is not a one size fits all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com/claude today. Welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. At the beginning of her new book, Machiavelli for Women, Stacey Vanek-Smith cites a bunch of data that shows how undervalued women are in the workplace and how underrepresented they are in leadership. So I asked her about something that really struck me when I read that data. It's amazing to read through them, not because of of, of the factual data. Like, sort of, you know, we know 80, 80% of CEOs are men, 90% for Fortune 500 companies, corporate boards, 80% male. Um, women make, you know, 80 cents for every dollar. Men make, et cetera, et cetera. What's so unbelievable when you read these stats, Stacey, is that I could have had that same exact conversation 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, I, I remember those same statistics 10 years ago and then and 10 years ago you would read them and say well this is going to change obviously and here we are and it really hasn't changed at all even though there are more women getting law degrees, medical degrees, um, they do better in standardized tests across the board in, in secondary schools and in colleges um, it hasn't changed. There, there's been very little movement over, over the last 10 years. I think that's right
1: right that is absolutely right. Um, and this was, in fact, this was the thing I was looking into right before I decided to write this book, was I was doing some uh, some pieces for my, for my podcast on the gender pay gap. And I was looking into it and talking about it. And one of the economists I was talking to, this wonderful woman, Francine Blau, said, oh, yeah, well, it's been the same for 10 years. And I was like, for 10 years? Hmm. She said, yeah, actually, it's gotten a little worse. And I was like, 10 years? That can't be right. But a lot of things have been stuck for 10 years. The share of women in the workforce stuck for 10 years. Of course, since the pandemic, we lost 30 years of progress. Things are just stuck. Um, And you're right. Women are going to law school, medical school, college in higher numbers. There are more women than men in law school. And yet 75% of federal judges are male. Mm. There are just about the same number of women and men in medical school, but 75% of surgeons, which didn't generally the highest paid job in that are are, are male. Seventy-five percent of law partners are male. Seventy-five percent of elected representatives are male. Um, there – something is happening. Like, there is a gap. Like, women are entering the workplace, but they're not reaching, as I came to think of it, like the princely realms. Machiavelli's princely realms they are not getting into the executive offices. They're not getting the money for their companies. Like, what is going on? Mm. And how – how can we possibly navigate that as individuals? because of course, a lot of this could change with policy, but as individuals we don't always have an effect over policy immediately. So like what can we do right now? just you
0: so you 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 sort of open up by kind of identifying some of the key um, sort of obstacles that that women face many of them we know well um, you know systemic obstacles and obstacles that can be as you rightly point out, you know, mitigated in some, some ways through policy. But there are other obstacles that seem self-perpetuating, not because women are holding themselves back, but because society has created a, a context in which women are expected to think or act or behave differently. So you, for example, talk about the Cinderella syndrome. What What is that?
1: The Cinderella syndrome, yes. This is this is one of the big ones. And this does seem very backwards in a way, but, you know, the research shows us that it's still very much alive and well. So the Cinderella syndrome is this idea that men tend to be promoted based on potential and that women tend to be promoted based on work that they've done, sort of again and again and again and again. And a lot of the reason for this has to do with assumptions that people make and not assumptions they want to make. A lot of times these are really good people, which is why I think this problem is so insidious and so hard to fix. Um, But people associate... Being a woman, being sort of a quote-unquote good woman, ideal feminine qualities are things like compassion, being self-effacing, not, you know, not asking for yourself, working on behalf of others, being nurturing. I mean, those are really beautiful qualities. But the problem is the qualities people associate with leaders – are not those qualities. The qualities people associate with leaders are people who are decisive, independent, don't care too much what other people think, are assertive, are not afraid to say something unpopular, not afraid to say the truth. Mm-hmm. And the qualities people associate with with a sort of a masculine, like the ideal masculine qualities are very much aligned with those leadership qualities. And it's very much at odds with women. So when women display leadership qualities, they're independent, they speak out, they don't care too much what other people think, this doesn't sit well with people because somehow this person just doesn't seem quite right. And what's happening is there is a clash going on in people's heads between what they associate with, uh, like, good feminine qualities and good leadership qualities. They're at odds. And so you can end up – the reason I call it the Cinderella situation is um, that Cinderella wanted to go to the ball. And her stepmother said, you can go to the ball, but you have to polish the banister, clean the house, you know, do all of these chores. Mm. It was really just a way of saying, you're never going to the ball. This is not happening. It was moving the goalpost. Yes, exactly. Moving the goalpost. And this is exactly what happens to women at work. It's like uh, you're never going to the ball, but I'm going to pretend like you could go to the ball. Why don't you do all of this really brutal labor <laughs> in the <laughs> meantime and you will be underpaid and then in the end you won't go to the ball anyway.
0: Based on your research and, and I sh- didn't even mention you, you've interviewed some amazing, incredible people for this book, Janet Yellen and, and – the chef Niki Nakayama and tech founders and Wall Street executives and Adele Lim, who wrote Crazy Rich Asians. Um, And one of the things that you you write about in in the money chapter is that um, one of the reasons you found that women don't negotiate their salaries is because, according to responses you you gathered, Many women find those negotiations to be excruciatingly painful and unpleasant and uncomfortable, which is true. They, they they can be.
1: Yeah. And women experience way more anxiety going into a negotiation than men do. There are all kinds of people speculating as to why this is. Part of it, of course, is cultural conditioning. Men are often raised to, like, embrace conflict. Women are often raised to avoid it at all costs. Um, I think part of the anxiety, though, is coming from... The difficulty of negotiating while female or of being just a disadvantaged worker um, in some way, negotiation becomes a lot trickier. Women ask for raises about one fifth of the time that men do. So women are just asking a lot less and experiencing a ton of anxiety when they do ask. So what's going on? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when women ask for more, they can be punished for it. People do not react well to women asking for more for themselves. They just don't. Women risk being seen as selfish, aggressive, like, who does she think she is? I mean, if a woman asks for more money in a salary negotiation, she's automatically considered less desirable to work with. Um, That doesn't necessarily happen for men because often we like to see men asking for more and asserting themselves and speaking up. Those are qualities, even if the man doesn't get a raise – You know, we admire that effort for women. It's just it's different. It's trickier. Um, And so walking into a negotiation is just far more fraught. Women are far less likely to succeed in negotiation. And there's a really clear downside. So I think that is a lot of why women experience so much more anxiety than men going into a negotiation and also why they're so much less likely to be successful. And even if they are successful, there's often a, you know, a real backlash.
0: So, so barring, you know, policy changes, right, which I think we all agree could have a huge, enormous impact on making a, a serious dent in this crisis, you write about individual action. What do you suggest somebody do in that situation? I mean, how do you begin to, to stand up for yourself? How do you begin to do that?
1: Yes, that is exactly the most important part of the book, I would say. Um, I would say a few things. First – Get information. You get as much information as you can legally get. Um, You want to know how much your colleagues are making. You want to know how much people are making at other companies. You can often just message people on LinkedIn and ask for a salary range. People want to help. There are a lot of men who care a lot about this. So you you just want to walk into any negotiation with as much information as you can possibly have. Right. This holds true for everyone going into a negotiation, by the way. Right. Um, I talked with Dr. Linda Babcock. She's a negotiation expert at Carnegie Mellon. And she told me that she thinks 90 percent of the success of a negotiation happens before you even open your mouth in the negotiation. It is about doing homework because a lot of discrimination happens in kind of foggy situations. Mm. Clarity is the thing that you want. You want to say, "Listen, I've done a lot of market research. I know this company tends to pay between $70 and $90,000 for this position. Um, I'm getting paid 68,000, so that's, you know, lower than than should be, um, but I'm also producing 20% more than anybody else on my team. So it seems like I should be making at the top of that salary range. So then you're giving concrete information. It takes the negotiation out of the realm of the emotional and the fuzzy, and that's where people's assumptions and discrimination live. You are giving them facts. Mm-hmm. You are trying to be paid fairly, treated with respect, and 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 also create a relationship with your employer. And yeah. this is the other big tip that I would give. When you walk into a negotiation, it shouldn't just be about money. Ever, ideally, your relationship with the company is a relationship. Mm. So, walking into a negotiation as a woman, you want to avoid anything adversarial that does not tend to work out very well for women—an adversarial kind of mano a mano standoff situation. What you want to do is create a collaborative environment. So, you say, "I'm so excited for my future at this company." I really see a future for me here. Here's what I think I can do for you guys. I know you're wanting to be more innovative, start a podcast. Um, That's something that's really interesting to me. I'd be so thrilled to to move in that direction. I think I I could really grow here, and I want to stay at this company. I'm so inspired and excited. Um, I do know that I'm getting paid on the lower end of the salary range, and it's important to me that my work be properly valued. Mm. And so, you know, I'd love to talk about my future at this company pay and also like where I'd like to go. And then suddenly you're opening things up. It's a collaborative. You are establishing a relationship. And I would argue that's a much better, more holistic approach for navigating a workplace anyway. Mm. And listen, if your boss says no. One really brilliant trick, which is so simple, but I literally never thought of it, came from Neha Narkede, who was the founder of this company, Confluent, which is a unicorn company. She's an amazing woman. She said she liked being told no because then it became a puzzle. How do I get to yes? So she said, ask for a list of specifics. Okay, what would you need to see from me to feel comfortable paying me that amount? get absolute specifics. Well, we would need to see your productivity go up by 10%. We would need to see you make X number of widgets or whatever it is. Go make those things happen and come back and say, listen, here's what you told me I need to do to get this raise or promotion or whatever it is. I've done them. And again, it's moving it away from the foggy into the concrete. And then Neha said, if she was still told no after delivering on all the specifics, she would leave. Because there was you don't want to stick around in a situation where where you're just gonna be blocked at every turn. At the same time, you are telling your employer what you want. You are asking how to get it if your employer says no. I mean, that's a really productive conversation.
0: We're gonna take another quick break, but when we come back, better negotiating through the Aaron Prokovich exception. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall—whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray Five-in-One gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
0: Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So here's more of my conversation with Stacey Vanek-Smith, host of NPR's The Indicator podcast and author of the new book, Machiavelli for Women a playbook for getting ahead. One of the things that really stood out to me is this idea that women tend to be at their best as negotiators when they're advocating on behalf of others. And it reminds me of of something Simon Sinek talks about and has talked about with us um, on the show about mission. When the mission isn't about you, you tend to perform better. How How can you apply this idea of, Advocating on your, <laughs> for yourself but, but using the principles of a- advocating for others because clearly you discovered that, that women are more effective when they advocate on behalf of others.
1: Oh, yes. This was one of my sort of favorite discoveries when I was writing the book. I called it the Erin Brockovich exception <laughs> because um, although we do tend to look at women quite negatively if they're pushy and assertive and aggressive – We don't do that if women are being pushy, assertive, and aggressive on behalf of someone else. Mm. That is very much in line with what we think an ideal woman is. She's selfless. So as a woman, you can kind of leverage it. For instance, if you want to ask for a raise, one thing you can do is think like, well, what should like Sharon, my colleague, be getting paid? Mm. And it's like, you know, she's totally underpaid. She should be making at least $80,000 that's what you should ask for. And your negotiation is likely to go better and be more successful if you do that. Um, Also, when women get into leadership roles, I think this can be very, very powerful. Uh, It's something that's often called transformational leadership. So instead of asking people to do something, if you say we need to do things on behalf of the team, you know, the team basically becomes the other person that you are fighting for. So it's like, you know, we really need to stay late um, so that the work that this team does is well represented. Like, I really believe in this team, but the work that we've been producing is not up to the standards that I really know this team can meet. That sounds much different to people's ears than like, you guys are not working hard enough. This work is not up to par. It's not okay. You're going to need to work all weekend.
0: One of the quotes um, in the book, among many of the quotes in the book from Machiavelli, is one he writes, he says, the first method of estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. And essentially uses this as a jumping off point to talk about building a support network at work, finding mentors. Um, And there's a lot to unpack here because finding a mentor is not always very easy for women and for underrepresented folks at in workplaces, because especially workplaces where men are in positions of power, um, as you write, people tend to mentor people who remind them of themselves. Yeah. So what what did you kind of begin to understand about how to build a support network around yourself in the work environment?
1: This actually emerged as maybe one of the most important things about... Mm succeeding in a workplace and in a profession overall is building a network. Um and by network I mean yes, mentors, what they call sponsors, which are like people very high up in the company who can kind of do things for you but mm. maybe aren't, you know, actively mentoring you every day, also colleagues, also people who are newer than you are, who have positions that aren't as like powerful or well-paid as your own. That network is crucial, I think, because that will help determine like people suggesting you for projects, people telling you about what they're working on, people wanting to collaborate with you, people speaking up for you, suggesting you for things, uh, promoting you full stop, and people standing up for you in meetings. If you get talked over or interrupted, having someone else jump in on your behalf can be really powerful. So I think finding a mentor in a situation where there aren't a lot of people who are natural mentors Is a process. Yeah. I think I would recommend looking for people whose work you like. Look for people you admire. And for whatever reason, maybe they're really – maybe they have amazing ideas. Maybe they're just really good at getting those ideas executed. Maybe they're amazing at working at a team. Maybe people just say really great things about them. And reach out to them. And tell them that. Exactly. Just say, you know, I really – you come up with the most creative ideas. It's so inspiring. Uh, I'd love to, you know, just get some advice from you and hear, you know, hear about your career trajectory because I'm hoping to get to X. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that person might not look like you. That person might have a really different background than you do. And it might not be a natural thing for this person to gravitate towards you. But I think if you feel a connection yourself to them for some reason. You you admire their work. You like the way they operate in the office. You like the way they relate to other people. Whatever it is, you like their leadership style. Tell them that thing. Hmm. That is a point of commonality. You can start from there.
0: One of the things that is so interesting about how you approach negotiations in the book is that you You make a point to say ultimately it's about interests. Yes, you can make the moral argument. You can say, look, you should do this for this reason, that reason, that reason. But oftentimes that's not as effective as making making it clear why it is in their interest to promote you or to offer you a raise because of the services that you offer and the value that you create for the organization. And, And that's an approach that you say is actually super effective when you when you frame it as being in their interest.
1: Yes. What you want to do, I think, is to present a story of a potential future with this employer. And mm-hmm. I think that can be incredibly productive. And so how do you make that happen? Well, I would argue that that a collaborative approach, presenting a future where you want to go, and saying like, listen, you know, I know that we're wanting to innovate more and produce more podcasts from new voices. I can help make that happen. Here's how. I'm so excited that I could collaborate on this with you. I mean, that is actually not not so – I mean, it's a little Machiavellian devious. But I would also argue it's it's a good thinking yeah, exercise for, for you sure. as an employee too. Like, what do they want? Can I – how do, how do our goals align? What's the crossover? And I think that can just make things happen so much faster than if you're only thinking about what you want to achieve.
0: I think oftentimes we forget in negotiations that it's much more disruptive for an employee to leave an organization and for the organization to have to completely retrain a new person and bring somebody on board and get them up to speed quickly, it's much more expensive and complex than it is to increase somebody's salary. From almost any vantage point, it's always better to retain people, and employers are usually approaching a negotiation with that in mind.
1: Oh, yes. So even if you don't think you have any leverage in a negotiation, let's say this is a job that has people lined up to take it, there's a real cost to employers If you walk away, I think Glassdoor said it's $6,000 is the average cost of recruiting people and interviewing them and all that. I mean, that's a lot of money. And that's
0: even before you hire them and then train them.
1: Yes. And that is not even taking into account the risk that the person they hire isn't going to be able to do the job or is like some, you know, has some kind of a meltdown or something. Um, So it is in an employer's interest to keep you. Uh, and there, there is definitely a shiny and new allure. I've seen this a million times, you know, where where companies get all excited about a new person, and they don't appreciate the qualities of a person who's already in the position. But also, anyone who's been on a hiring committee, it's exhausting, and you just want to not have to do that, <laughs> if, you know. And if if at least if you're happy in your workplace or like the work that you're doing. Give your employer a chance by telling them what you want and don't assume that they're just going to be like, whatever, like I, a million people will apply for this job the second you walk out the door. We don't need you. Definitely never assume that because it's not true.
0: You – I mean ultimately in, – and in, in you have a chapter. should. Well, I love the title. You can go your own way because I, I love that song too. <laughs> um, it's a good one. But, you know, ultimately that is a decision – you you can make i mean you can make that decision to go i, I remember i interviewed Indra Nui about her life and career at pepsi and
1: yeah.
0: she was really recruited hard to come to pepsi in, in 1994 and they she had been at um uh you know a technology firm she'd been at motorola they really wanted her at pepsi and she was being recruited by ge and she had to decide between ge and and monsanto and pepsi and they were all really trying to get her on board to, to come to be a, a strategic leader and this is not long before she became CEO. So she joins Pepsi in 94. By 96, she's ready to leave. She was frustrated. She felt disrespected. She felt like it was an old boys network and that many of the men in the executive team were disrespectful and, and dismissive of her ideas. And, and one day she walked into the CEO's office and she said, I'm, you know, I'm going to present this. Uh, uh, this st- strategic um, plan to the board, and then I'm leaving. Um, I'm done. And he was stunned. She she describes this in her book that he was stunned uh. to to learn that she felt this way, didn't know that, and instantly, um, instantly read the riot act to these other executives. But she was prepared to leave. She said, "I don't need this," and she didn't have a plan. But it it reminded me of this this chapter here, which is that. Ultimately, it is also part of, of anyone's toolkit yeah. that you can, if you have to, and if it makes sense, you can walk away.
1: Yes. And I think that is incredibly powerful to know. Um, one of the things that I, I read about in the book is that I had noticed <laughs> that I have not had a great – I've never liked negotiating, and I had been historically just terrible at it. But there were a couple of negotiations that went really, really well for me, and those were in cases where I didn't really care about the thing I was negotiating for. I was amazing. It was amazing to see what happened when I didn't care about what I was negotiating for. And that, of course, really frustrated me because I was like, well, it's one thing to be awesome at a negotiation when you don't want the thing you're negotiating for, but – I don't care about those negotiations. I care about the negotiations where I do really want the thing. So what is the power secret in the not caring that I could potentially apply? And I think the key is a willingness to let go. And when you're holding really tightly to a job or a position or an idea of where your career should go, that can be a real weakness. It can make you brittle And I think flexibility, mental flexibility, is so important in a negotiation. Like, you don't know what opportunities might come up. I would say staying open is so important. And I think knowing in your head and heart that you will be okay – that you can make it on your own and and do what you have to do to, you know, maybe it's six months of savings or whatever it is, having that confidence inside of yourself is probably the most powerful tool you can have in a negotiation. You're not trying to prove your value by getting bumped up to a senior reporter from Reporter 2, right? Your, Your value as a human being and the value of your work does not hinge on that. Although, let me tell you, Guy, there have been certain moments in my career when I have felt exactly that way. But your value as a person and, and the work you produce is completely independent of of that recognition. And so I think that loosens you up. It gives you a freedom. If you know that you can go on your own and that maybe that will be a better thing, I think that could be so powerful.
0: Your experience obviously comes from being a reporter working for media organizations. But um, and I I know your story well because we're friends and we've known each other for a long time. Yes. Um, but what I love about this book is how universal it is. It applies to anybody working in any field, whether it's banking or in in the tech sector or or for a consumer goods product um, company or or even for a small business. It, it the ideas here are are universal. And you know what I discovered when I wrote my book last year was that I actually. Was writing a book for myself that I needed. I needed to to answer Aww. questions I had, right? Which was, yeah. how do you start a business, and and that was the result of the uh, the result of it was was this manual. I needed a book that it was a book that I would have needed when when I I couldn't have answered those questions. And similarly, I think that was your approach with this book. It was like I need the answers to this. I have to imagine you've walked away from you know all of this research and all of these interviews you've done and all this writing a better negotiator, a stronger negotiator, and more sort of strategic in understanding how to use certain tactics?
1: Well, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because I don't even really think of negotiations as negotiations anymore. A part of that could be that I'm, I'm very solidly mid-career, so I'm not starting out, so I feel... And also podcasting, there are a lot of jobs happening, which has not always been the case in our profession. So circumstances, outside circumstances have also changed. But the anxiety of a negotiation has largely just vanished for me because mm. I, I don't really think of it as negotiations. It's more of a, if you want this from me, here is what I would need from you to make that happen. Here's what I would like to see from you. Here's what I would need to be happy Yeah, or feel valued in this job. and. That's so much easier, and I just feel so much less anxiety than, like, you know, listen, I know what you're paying everybody else here, and I know I'm underpaid, and you have to give me a $15,000 raise or or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, which just – so much anxiety, and I would put negotiations off for years, years in some cases. Um, now I just try to have check-in conversations with mm. my managers a lot more. It's funny because um, – Some of my colleagues have expressed a little bit of anxiety around this book. They're like, oh, are you are you like sneaking around? Are you scheming? Uh, (laughs) I know. But um, I think way to the contrary, I'm much more open about what I want. Um, I was much more scheming and secretive and tortured before And now it's just part of a conversation. I feel confident in what I'm giving to the job. I guess I talk with my managers a lot more. I'm much more honest. I'm very much more open about what I want and where I'd like to go. I also just don't think of it as an antagonistic situation anymore. And I really used to, like high noon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't anymore. It's a relationship. It's a give and take. It's a moving forward together. And I'm asking for things. And if the answer's no... I don't feel crushed or like a less valuable person or worker. Mm. I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Or I don't even feel like I have to quit. I've thought about things so much more holistically. I feel like there are a million options. Oh, there's no money for a raise right now. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'd also value this and this and this. Mm. And it's made me think a lot more deeply about what I value and what I want. And it's just taken a lot of the fear out of things. It's taken a lot of the anxiety of negotiation and with. Dealing with managers and upper management at companies, it just, I feel a lot more relaxed, I guess.
0: That's Stacey Vanek-Smith, author of Machiavelli for Women. One more way Stacy connected to Machiavelli. He wrote The Prince during a period of exile, and Stacy's book was written almost entirely during the isolation of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top, from Luminary and Built It Productions.